You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. For me, this work on Afro-descendant women, for me, it's a state of an emergency. Black women are living in a state of emergency. And I thought that it would be tremendously irresponsible of me and in some ways just downright disrespectful to ask these women to share their their stories with me and then keep it to myself or keep it within academia and therefore safeguard it in a way that would place this information outside of the reach of any sort of institution or organization that needed this right you know the government needs it to implement better policy but other activist groups need this as well when they're lobbying, when they're asking for help. They need studies to refer to. They need to know about what other people have done. And so I was always thinking about how I could share this work outside. In this episode, we are honored to be joined by Dr. Esha Lewis, who is an Afro-Caribbean Canadian cultural anthropologist and a lover and teller of stories. She's worked with Afro-descendant peoples in Latin America and the Caribbean for over 10 years. While working on gender violence and race in Peru, Esha developed an even deeper love and respect for Black women's organizing and thought, and what it offers in terms of thinking about what a better world can look like. She is currently the project director for Sapiens Magazine's Public Scholars Training Fellowship, which is a program that teaches anthropologists public science writing and podcasting skills. I ended up working in Peru, as I do with most things in my life, by accident. I was in university, University of Toronto, I'm from Toronto, and I was in Latin American Studies, this wonderful small program that came across some money for undergraduate students, which is pretty uncommon. And initially, I wanted to go to Colombia and do work on Afro-descendants in Colombia, Colombia like Cuba or Brazil. Those are countries that are much better known, I would say, for having a Black population and, and a, a very strong Black presence. But because of the civil conflicts that was taking place at the war at that time, it wasn't safe. And so I ended up through another member of my program finding out about Peru. And it just became really interesting to me. It also seemed to be something that was very similar to Canada in many ways, thinking about a country that had a Black population that people really don't speak about very often. And so I ended up winning a grant going to Peru. And that kicked started about 10 years of work. A few years into that research, which initially was just working with veteran and new Afro-Peruvian activists, I was in my master's program at the University of Florida, fast forwarding. And I was really interested in working in Peru more, and I was interested in women's issues and really trying to get a feel for what it was that I wanted to, to work on for my research. 
And I was sexually assaulted during my master's program, right at the end, right when I had to do all of my writing, and it totally interrupted my life. And I took that interruption with me when I went back to Peru. And I started asking, you know, I started asking the women I worked with, who I love and respect very much. And I said, you know, I don't hear people talking about sexual assault and Afro-Peruvian women. And I really want to know if that is because it's not happening or if it's because no one's talking about it. And I said, you know, and if it is that it's happening, is this something that I I could work on? You know, is this something that I can research? You know, recognizing how little money there is for these kinds of projects and how important this could be. And they said, this is absolutely happening. It is really important. And for a number of reasons, people are not talking about it. So if you have the money and you have the time, then you should do it. And so that's how I ended up doing this work. And it was a really beautiful, moving project, but also deeply difficult. You know, I think some of the things that I had to really think about being sensitive about, first of all, is really understanding the context of Peru. I'm an anthropologist, and so I think a lot about context, like regional context, international context, but also local context. And I think that working in a place where people don't understand Black history is very difficult. And you can say that for just about you know, any of the countries that are in South America or in Latin America, you know, I think it's getting more common to talk about Afro-descendants and their history in whatever place you find them. But people have a very limited knowledge about the the legacy of Afro-descendants, and they have a, an even, I would say, scarcer knowledge of, of what Afro-Peruvians have been through. There's a need to focus on and understand both how race works and how gender works and how they work together and how oppressive they can be in people's lives. And that was really crucial, not only in working with women in order to really understand what they were going through and to understand the decisions that they made and how they were fighting back and how they were trying to make decisions in their lives, but also in dealing with people who work in the government, people who work in women's emergency centers, in order to understand where they were coming from, the things that they understood or the things that they didn't understand were shaped in large part by these large systemic issues, right? Like racism, like the way Peru positions itself as a country that is indigenous, that doesn't necessarily have an Afro-descendant past. And so I think that being both sensitive and trying to bring some empathy there really helped me as I move forward in, in, in my research there. I guess I'm curious how you ended up taking your findings forward as a sort of like the activism portion of your work. Yeah. Okay. So a really wonderful, I would say just like an absolute joy, one of many that I stumbled upon and, you know, in, a, in many ways helped create while I was doing this work was an Afro-Peruvian feminist collective. It's the first one that ever existed in Peru. Black feminist, not women's organizing. Women's organizing in Peru and Black women's organizing has been taking place for a long time. And I always try to defer to my elders and and really respect them and, and the work that they have done. But yeah, I was very fortunate to be able to be a co-founder of an Afro-Peruvian Black women's feminist collective. And that was a tremendous source of support and love and learning for me during those processes. So I would spend the days at these emergency centers, talking to women, talking to people who work in these centers to try to understand 
how the government is thinking about race and ethnicity and what Black women and Afro-descendant women are going through. And then in the evenings, you know, once a week, I would meet up with these women and we would have these conversations about feminism, about Black women's experiences, about what makes Peru a very particular and specific environment and an interesting environment. You know, there's so much important Black history that takes place in Peru, you know, Lima was considered during colonial times to be a black city. And that is, you know, really outside of the purview of many people's imaginations at this point in time, because of the way that people talk about Peru these days and talk about Lima. But so much of what people love about that city was, was if not created, then, you know, heavily contributed to by people of African descent. And so being in a space where we could talk about Black women's contributions and talk about our personal experiences and really support each other and learn together and debate and fight and find resolution was extremely meaningful for me. I think on the other side of that, you know, I got into anthropology, not because I love it, but because it was the way that I thought I could best be of service. And I think being of service or using my skill sets to support causes that are important to me is something that was imparted to me by my parents and my community, but also something that I really deeply believe in. And so, you know, I got, I started that project because I felt, you know, I have the skills and I have the funding to do this where other people don't. But for me, this work on Afro-descendant women for me, it's a state of an emergency. Black women are living in a state of emergency. And I thought that it would be tremendously irresponsible of me. And in some ways, just downright disrespectful to ask these women to share their their stories with me and then keep it to myself or keep it within academia and therefore safeguard it in a way that would place this information outside of the reach of any sort of institution or organization that needed this, right? You know, the government needs it to implement better policy, but other activist groups need this as well. When they're lobbying, when they're asking for help, they need studies to refer to. They need to know about what other people have done. And so I was always thinking about how I could share this work outside. So I did my dissertation, I wrote my dissertation, but I also wrote a, a study for the government, an executive report on the situation of Afro-Peruvian women and what I learned in those emergency centers so that they could consider it when changing policy. And I also wrote about it in public outlets as well as academic outlets. So I wrote, well, actually where I work now, right? Sapiens Magazine, which um, is an anthropology outlet. And I did that with the intent to share my work with a broader public, people who care, people who are interested, but don't have access to, you know, higher education programs, right? Or, or you know, all the money that you need to get behind academic firewalls to read, read my work. And it was also really important to me because I got to publish out in Spanish. And so the woman who I worked with, if they wanted to, with an internet connection can read at least a bit about what I did and why it was important. And so that's always been a driving force for me. That's always been something that I strive towards is to do really good work and then find the best way to share it with people who, who care about it. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to dive deeper into a lot of this later on. But thank you for sharing your personal story and just turning all of that into feel for really important work. And I guess also just this acknowledgement that a lot of a lot of your 
decision to go into the field of anthropology through academia has kind of been an, a means to the end, like recognizing the skill set that you do have and also the funding opportunities that you could tap into to support a lot of this work. And you shared that part of what has been important to your work is the how, which is the process of conducting transparent, ethically sound research using a range of methods to center the voices of those you work with and provide reliable findings, end quote. There's no generalization, but I'm aware of some anthropological work being critiqued when those carrying out the research take on a sort of extractive dynamic and maybe go into a community that the researcher doesn't have ties to, spending a little bit of time there and then reporting on those things based on their own cultural lenses and interpretations. What more can you share about concerns like this in the field and what has it meant to you to engage in anthropological research in ways that better align with your intentions and awareness of research? researcher-subject relationships? Wow, that's a great question. I think part of being, or having studied anthropology, being an anthropologist, at least for me, is recognizing that this discipline has a tremendously harmful past, right? When we look at the history of anthropology, yes, it's extremely extractive. You know, barging into communities, asking questions you may not have any any business asking, right? Sharing those results in ways that are not ethical, do not align with the ideas that the people who who produce this knowledge, who are the gatekeepers of this knowledge, would approve of. Uh, that is, if they even have a say in it, right? We've seen how anthropology has played a role in scientific racism, right? So going to study people a as subjects of study, right, rather as subjects in their own right, human beings. Um, in their own right, and then using that to further these really oppressive and and destructive ideas about who is better than others, who should be making decisions, who should be holding power. And so there is an ongoing dispute and debate within anthropology, especially as time goes on, especially, you know, I, I would say in this post-George Floyd world, but I think that that in some ways also does disservice to the fact that they're there have been Black anthropologists and anthropologists of color, Indigenous anthropologists, making these claims for a long time, right? It's just that the rest of the world was not willing or ready to hear that as yet. And so I think these these messages are coming across stronger now because, because of the context that we're living in today, right? But so there's always this risk, right? This This question of can we as Audre Lorde said, or as a play on what Audre Lorde said, you know, use the master's tools to destruct or deconstruct the master's house, right? And that is fraught and it's very difficult. And I think that there's a theoretical argument against it, right? Like, can we can we use anthropology? Can anthropology be used for good? But then there are a whole collective of individual and collective decisions around how we want to engage with the discipline, how we want to engage with other people that hint at the fact that it is possible. There are people out there who are doing really wonderful work. Um, and I think a consciousness and a dedication to really scrutinizing methods and really thinking about what we're doing and why that can help you to stay on the straight and narrow. And when you inevitably make decisions that get you in trouble or end up in a situation that could be, you know, sticky for 
lack of a, a better way to describe it, give you a kind of compass and a guide to figure out what kind of choices you want to make, right? How you want to conduct research, how you want to conduct yourself. And not even, it doesn't even have to be in the name of anthropology, right? But just in the attempt to do better and to to treat people with dignity and respect. I think for me as a Black anthropologist, a Black feminist anthropologist, a Black person and woman, I also am in this sort of in-between space where I am an anthropologist, but I also belong to a number of groups of people that have been on the receiving end of anthropology's oppression. And so that also figures heavily into how I conduct myself. I I also recognize that I'm very fortunate, right? I'm fortunate to be able to have the funding that I've needed to spend significant periods of time, you know, in this case in Peru, right, with the communities that I work with to really understand people and to try to to think through what I'm thinking, really analyze the way I'm approaching the work that I do, to humble myself and to to recognize that the people I work with are the experts and that without them, I cannot do what I am trying to do, right? So I think with that, those sort of intentions in mind to really listen, to learn, and then to assert myself when necessary. And I've had to do that as well, right? Like sometimes in the case of my my doctoral research, right? Being someone who's Canadian, who's an English speaker with the backing of a US institution means that I have a certain amount of weight I can throw around, right? So if I can use that weight, if I can use that power or leverage to help the people I am, you know, working with, then I I do that, right? So it's always kind of a thinking about who I am, where I am, what power I hold, what access I have and trying to use that to the best of my abilities to get closer to my goal, which is to support Black women, to try to do something that can eradicate the violence that we live with, and to treat their stories with dignity and respect, and to to show the integrity that I have for myself as well, right? Because my name is also on the line, right? If I behave in ways that are deplorable, then that says something about me. And and my reputation is also important to me. So all of that is always rolling around in my head as I'm trying to work or write or just exist as, as an anthropologist. Yeah. So your North Star really remains the same and you're always looking to the resources and tools and yeah, other things mm-hmm. that you could tap into in order to leverage those things in support of your goals. And you mentioned this question of dismantling the master's house with the master's tools. Kind of along those lines, various writers and activists whose work I've engaged with have critiqued the limitations of working from within the system when it comes to decolonial politics or Black liberation. And while I personally used to be a lot more cynical, I would say, I do very much acknowledge that things are never either or and they're very real and direct impacts that a lot of incremental policy changes even Mm -hmm. can have on people's lives today, which really can't be diminished. Like if a family is able to receive an extra compensation of X amount or if a survivor can get better access to the support that they need today, that matters as much as the larger picture of a systemic overhaul. And as someone who is tuned into 
a lot of these social justice and environmental justice conversations and radical politics as someone who, again, is guided by a North Star of supporting Black communities and as someone who is mindful of how different forms of knowledge are valued or not valued enough in the language of nation state politics, what more can you share about this nuance and the impacts of conducting academic research, which might help to translate real communities' struggles into language that the policy world validates? Hmm. You know, I, I think this is tricky, right? Like it's, it's, I think from where I stand, it's very easy to be super skeptical of, of policy and big institutions and rightly so, right? Like we, we have so much evidence of how they have failed and how they continue to fail the communities that we belong to. But like you said, you know, I think there, there are tremendous strides that have been made and they have been made maybe not necessarily because of the institution, but because of the people. I don't like to individualize movements and those kinds of struggles. I think that there's a danger in that, right? And just, you know, this, you know, one person came and just changed everything. I, I think that those of us who, who work around movements or thinking about radical change can understand that that is not true. And that can actually be a really dangerous narrative. But that said, you know, I think that there is something to be said for what can happen when you do have people who are critically minded, who represent their communities in a particular way in certain institutions and, and in powerful positions, you know, we have ample example of that throughout, right, in, in different countries and different regions. You know, I think for my work, I am really trying my best to think about audience and this might only be getting to part of your question. So if I am missing something, please let me know. But I think a lot about audience, right? Like I think about what information is good to have within academia and within that space and what needs to go elsewhere and how I need to write, how I need to share, right? Like my parents, my family, they're really smart people, but they don't want to read an academic article necessarily, right? That writing can be extremely exclusive. So I have to think about how I can write for them. I have to think about how I can communicate with academia. I have to think about how I can communicate with with policymakers, right? Those are different languages and learning to speak to those different people. It's like learning a different language. You really have to know what your goal is, who you're talking to, what you want them to know. So, so I think that for me, that balance of trying to figure out how I'm going to do that, that is really important to me. I think at this point in time, I do my work outside of academia. And so I also have this perspective of like what it's like being on the outside, looking in, knowing what the inside is like to understand the limitations. I think that that these institutions can offer a good deal of power, but they can also blind you in some degree. If you're not careful, if you're not vigilant, if you're not paying attention, it is very easy to just sort of slip into the comfort that is, you know, living and writing and existing within a bubble, really, right, of people who speak the same language of you, but are not necessarily interacting or don't even have to interact with people outside of that space, right? We're having conversations that not everyone is privy to. So I think for me, again, you know, my mission was always, how do I 
do the best I can? How do I share this information? I'm really clear with myself now about what what works for me inside and what works for me outside and who I want to communicate with. I think that's kind of the way that I think about this. Yeah, you actually cued in my next question, which is <laughs> what's me. been really interesting to me is learning about how you've learned to write for and communicate to different audiences because you're engaging with a lot of different groups, whether it's various levels of government or international entities, funding institutions, the communities that you're engaging with, and of course, a broader audience beyond academia. And I think for me, this is something that I've personally felt stuck on because Mm. when it comes to publishing online articles or newsletters or even doing this podcast, I am aware that there's so much diversity amongst our readers and listeners in terms of what fields they each work in, what educational or cultural or economic background that they have. Mm -hmm. So I think I often feel stuck when writing articles or just doing things that are kind of broadcast media because I feel like I would and should write and speak differently depending on who exactly I'm trying to engage so that I can best reach and speak to them. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm curious to hear more about how you've learned to shift gears and voices and language in your storytelling based on who you're trying to engage and what that might say about the different values or perspectives that different groups hold front and center. I don't really know how I really started thinking about writing for different audiences. I think I was always really aware that I wanted to reach different audiences, right? Like academic writing, learning how to write in academia is a skill. You don't, nobody just wakes up one day in grade three and is like, you know, let me use these giant words that, you know, no, most people can't understand, right? It's, it's, it's learning to exist in a particular kind of ecosystem that comes with its own norms and languages. But I was really aware. And I think it's, you know what, I think it's because I work with so many people who make it so clear that academia can still really be a pipe dream for a lot of people that it's out of reach, right? And, and so I said, like, those are the people who I'm working with, I know that I'm working with people who we are so much less likely to have access to education, right? So how can I, if I'm writing about people, if I'm writing about communities, I'm writing about us, like my people, like black people, I can't just be writing this for people who are in academia who, and I will mention again, you know, like just because you are university educated, if you are outside of a university, unless you're willing to pay for access to all of these different journals, you, you need a friend to download articles for you. You can't access them. Right. So this is not, what I'm saying is also not a judgment on people who do not have MAs and PhDs. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of access. Totally. Not everyone has access to that. But most people do not have access. And so what am I doing if I am only writing in these places where there is such limited access that most people can't get to it? And when they get it, they can't understand it. Right? I think there's a very long history of power keeping, you know, sort of like sequestering knowledge away from people, disguising it, just, you know, it's up on this high shelf and they can't get to it. And then also this, this issue of urgency for me, right? This information needs to get out there. How do I get it out there? And then I think the third thing is what you, what you kind of alluded to, right? There are, there are many different ways of passing on knowledge. And one of the things that I love, um, I'm Caribbean, my family's from Trinidad. 
I love oral history. I love listening to my aunties tell me stories. I love listening to even just good gossip, right? And I wanted to capture that some way in my writing and these stories that I tell. I do work on intimate partner violence and it is painful and it's horrific and it's tragic. But you know, the woman I work with and myself as a survivor, we're funny, we're intelligent, we're complicated and annoying. And, you know, I want to be able to portray us in our fullness as human beings, as members of communities and societies, as people who have a history. And I couldn't just do that through one medium of writing. And so I think that my approach or my, my awareness of different mediums really came from wanting to reach different audiences. So, you know, even through my time in academia, I, I wasn't very drawn to, you know, like very pithy writing. I really wanted to write clearly. I wanted to get my point across to people. That was most important to me. I want my students, whoever I'm teaching, I want them to understand what I'm saying because this message is important, right? Like helping people understand that, you know, there are black people in Lima or in Bolivia or in Argentina. That's really important. I don't want them getting lost. But I also understand that that's an institution that has its own norms and languages. But then I was always looking and I was really fortunate because I had a friend while I was, um, who was also in my PhD program with me. And she started writing for these public facing outlets like magazines, digital magazines. And she was just reaching so many people and having these amazing conversations. And she said, you know, you can do this too. Why don't you write for, you know, there, there are tons of magazines out there. And, and these people would really be interested in your story. You can't write 30 pages for them. You've got to figure out how to synthesize and get your point across. But you can do that and you can reach a whole bunch of people. Why don't you do it? And, you know, she really encouraged me to, to do that as well, right? I think one of the downfalls of academia is that you, because you you need to write in a certain way in order to get into the journal so that you can get tenure, other things sort of fall to the wayside, right? Like oral history, that doesn't get me any points. You know, creative writing, that doesn't necessarily win me any points. So you kind of leave those things to the side. And because I wasn't, I wasn't dead set on becoming a professor in that sense, I felt like I had a lot more freedom. And so I got to explore and I explored ethnographic fiction, which I love. I need to do more of that, you know, which gave me this amazing opportunity to take my 10 years of work in Peru and make a story that was really true about the people based on people I knew, based on experiences I had, based on the smell of the bus at 3 p.m., you know, that I would take. And that allowed me to share beyond the pain, right? Like beyond the pain, beyond the suffering, beyond the hardship, that is definitely part of sexual violence, but also the existence of Black people. But our existence is so much more than that. And so so I think, you know, writing for these different mediums allowed me to create a bigger picture, right? If you take my work as a whole, yeah, I like to think that if you read all of that, you get a fuller picture. And that's the point for me. So that's been really important. Mm, Thank you for sharing all of this. And I know that being able to translate sort of academic research to the broader audience is one of the major intentions 
of Mm -hmm. Sapiens magazine. And part of the practice of translating academic research to the general public is being mindful of language. (laughs) And this is something that really resonates for me also because I often converse with people whose articles or books have come out of their scholarly research focuses, also maybe because there's disproportionately more funding for researchers in academia and formal Mm -hmm. institutions compared to citizen researchers. And like in the field of journalism, that's another factor that kind of skews the lenses and voices of the stories that get published Mm -hmm. and most validated. But in any case, I have received feedback from listeners before to bring on more guests who don't come from the academia world because of a lot of the terminology that they use that aren't really as relatable for most people. And I know you've talked Mm -hmm. about leaving behind jargon when it comes to making research language more accessible. So I'd be curious to hear you elaborate on what else you and your colleagues have had to be mindful of when trying to communicate to a broader audience. And also your thoughts on this question of language more generally, because I totally agree that it's very important to be able to speak to a broader audience. And at the same time, I also understand that expanding vocabulary is a way to help diversify and deepen our perspectives of other people and the world, like how communities who live by the ocean might have a lot more nuanced vocabulary around waves and water, or how cultures that live with glaciers and snow might have a lot more technical and specific language relating to that specific environment. And that's also really important. So I would love to hear what you've thought through on these fronts. Yeah. So Sapiens Magazine, again, something unexpected that ended up in my life. Um, I was really drawn to the magazine when I first stumbled across it, just seeing anthropology laid out for everyone. You know, that's something that I really hadn't seen before that I hadn't thought about before. Like I knew that that's something that I wanted. That's something that I wanted for my work and it was something that I felt was really necessary, but to actually see it was just really mind blowing. And even the process of writing with Sapiens was very different. Working with someone who knew anthropology, someone who's a trained anthropologist, right? To have an editor who's a trained anthropologist, who's not just looking at your theoretical argument, but is also interested in the integrity of what you're trying to say is very different. So after I published with Sapiens, I ended up working first as a fellow and now as a project director. Um, It's really been interesting to look at the process and the way that the magazine approaches public writing. So yes, jargon, leaving the jargon out is important, right? When you're in a group of people that all speak the same language, then it's really helpful, right? It's, It's kind of like a quick way to tune people into what you're trying to say. But when you are writing for a general public, right, a general public, those words that are highly specialized, they can be really alienating. It's a really great way to get people to shut down, to shut their brains off, because sometimes it can make you feel stupid if you don't, if you feel like you don't know what's going on. It's tiring to try to have to figure out what it is that somebody's saying, right? So leaving the jargon out helps to streamline your argument for someone who is intelligent and interested, but maybe just not a specialist, right? Like that's all it is. You're just not a specialist. This idea of audience, like really thinking about your audience is really important too. You're not necessarily writing for your peers. Who are you writing for? Are you writing for you know, 
Cosmopolitan magazine and therefore writing for their target audience? Are you writing for the target audience of The Economist? Who is it that you're trying to speak to? Because you really have to think about meeting people where they are, right? Like how how am I forming this argument so that it, it sits with the people you want it to reach? We talk a lot about heart overhead, right? So what is the story? What is something that is relatable that people can understand that they can grasp onto? Using that as an entry point, right? That tends to work a lot more than starting with the more technical sides of your argument, because we also understand that there's so much information out there and it's at the tip of our fingers, which is wonderful, but also really intimidating and overwhelming. And people have really short attention spans. And if you're not grabbing people, if you're not saying something that speaks to them almost immediately, you're probably going to lose them. So not waiting until the fifth paragraph to start getting into it. You know, academics like to save the good stuff till the end. Sometimes you have to know that most people aren't going to make it to the end, right? Especially in public writing, when there's so many things to read. Someone's probably scrolling through your article in, you know, morning traffic. They don't have time to wait till paragraph five. What is it that you're trying to say? And on that note too, you know, God, academics, we're we're the yes ands, I think, of like the professional world. We want to cram everything into the article, right? Like we'll tell you the article is about A, but when you get to reading, it's really about B, C, D, E, and F. You can't do that, right? We don't have as much space. You don't have 30, 30 pages, right? Maybe you have 2,000 words. Maybe you have you know, 2,500, right? So really picking one story to tell, picking one aspect of your research and focusing on that and laying it out well and being really clear about what it is, why it's important, why it's important now, really bringing people into the world that you are working with working on and also not dumbing it down right the point is not to dumb this down it is to streamline it so thinking about all of these different ways to tell a good story to tell it well to tell a story that is contained right those are all tactics that sapiens uses and tries to impart to its writers and also to its readers by way of good storytelling to try to get people to think about how they themselves can translate their their work. But on your note about language, you know, language is really complicated too. And I'm fascinated by language. I, I feel like in another life, I could have just been a linguist and learned as many languages as possible because there are some things that you can't translate, right? There are some things, and whether that's because it's very local, because it is in a different language and that language doesn't have a word for it. So even in those senses, even in in those instances rather, trying to figure out how to capture the essence, whether that is using the term and trying to define it or giving an example of when it would be used, taking people along with you, right? Your, Your audience, they're not stupid. They're not, they're not, looking necessarily for the easy way out, but they are looking for you to meet them at the door and welcome them in mm. as opposed to just yelling from the hallway, the door is open, right? Find me in the house. So I think that those are the kinds of things that I try to work through, whether it's trying to write for a different audience or trying to translate Spanish 
to English or thinking about something in Portuguese and trying to figure out how to move it back across different languages. It's very complicated, but that's kind of what it means to be human. We're pretty complicated. So not running from it, you know, kind of revel in it and, and figure out how to how to share that with other people. Wow, I really appreciate all of these insights and they're really important for me to think about as well. And I'm looking forward to just sitting with everything you've shared here. For now, we're nearing the end of our main conversation, but with all of this in mind, as you've been hosting the fifth season of the Sapiens podcast, what are some questions about our humanity or this question of how to be human or what makes us human that you've personally been curious to lean deeper into? And what are your calls to action or deeper inquiry for our listeners? Oh my gosh. Questions I have about humans. I don't know. I'm, I'm at once fascinated and terrified of our species. I think, I think questions, I'm more so just leaning into the awe, Mm. you know, like I, I think it's, you're in a state of awe when you don't even know what question to ask. You're just kind of, you know, I think this season of the Sapiens podcast this is my first time being a podcast host. And it's just, it was such an honor to get to support our fellows through that process. I really think that after listening to all of the episodes, it really is just kind of sitting back and contemplating like, wow, human beings are fascinating. We are so interesting. We, I don't know, you know, like the, the interactions that we have with plants, right? Who could have predicted that? Who could have predicted that we would have been involved in, you know, plant manipulation to the point that we have this incredible variety of chilies all over the world, right? And not only that we cultivated them, but that we moved them, right? We we take them with us, we mix them with new things. You know, gastronomy is fascinating. Thinking about organizing, right? The way that people use shamanism to to think about decision-making, right? Thinking about how, how we're organizing to combat sexual violence, right? Thinking about how people are thinking about coastal erosion. It's just that we have so much going on and we're doing so much and we have done so much and sometimes it's terrifying, but sometimes it's just truly incredible, right? And so I think for me, it's less the questions and more the awe, like what we're capable of. And I think as someone who I feel like having at least a teaspoon of optimism in whatever I'm eating is just what's keeping me alive. It it gives me a lot of hope to just say, you know, we've, we've found our way through some really tricky instances and we're, we're working our way through them. And we have these these, this amazing ability to adapt and change and accept and reject and create a world and worlds within it that is just, yeah, I think it's really astounding. So I don't know that I have questions. It's mainly just this sort of <sighs> awe. And I think that if I were to impart something, it would be more of an invitation to just kind of be more in awe. I know that's really hard when, you know, doom scrolling is, you know, every day, you know, more and more irresistible. And we have gotten ourselves into quite a few major messes, right, that we're facing now. But at the same time, there is just, 
so much innovation around us. There's so much capability. And I'm not talking about people like way up at the top. I'm talking about like everyday people. That is that is really what I would invite people to do is to just sit back and be in awe for a second and take that as an invitation to really think about what we can do, what we're capable of, what we can contribute, what we might have already contributed without even realizing it. Yeah, I think that's that's where I'm sitting. It kind of allows you to embrace the the joy as much as we embrace the fear and the dread. And I would say that that that's that's something that is both a challenge for me but that is definitely getting me through the hard moments. What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? Ooh, I just finished uh, Dalma Llanos uh, Figueroa. She's an Afro-Puerto Rican author. She wrote a book called A Woman Woman of Endurance. It's an amazing. I absolutely love it and cannot recommend it any higher. It's just phenomenal. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Oh, I think I actually just said it. Yeah, just trying to embrace the joy as much as I embrace the fear. (laughs) I'm good at embracing the fear. I need Mm -hmm. to lean harder the other way. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? I'm going to say my aunties. They're all in town right now, or they're coming to town, and I just... I love them. I love their energy. I love their wisdom. I love how mean they can be. <laughs> and 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 I I really uh, love them together. Like seeing all of them together inspires me. I'm very inspired by everyday people and you know the everyday things we do to to get by and bring ourselves joy and support ourselves. Hmm. Mm. Well, I hope you have a wonderful time with them. And to our listener, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Esha's work, you can head to eshalewis.com. And we will have more links and resources from this episode in our show notes as well at greendreamer.com. Esha, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Absolute honor to have you here. For now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Yeah, I I, I can't help it. I As I said, the optimism, I think it might be annoying for some people, but it keeps me going. So I really think just embracing any opportunity to find the awe, find the joy, and to really appreciate people, like everyday people, people on your walk, people on your commute, people on your, I don't know, 
in the grocery store, people are really fantastic and amazing and capable of a lot. And we really are all we got. So, so I encourage you to just pause and look up around at each other every once in a while. Yeah, that's what I would say. If you feel inspired by these conversations and wish to see our podcast continue, please join us today on Patreon starting at just $2 a month at greendreamer.com support. We really do need and so appreciate your direct support in order to be able to continue our ad-free show. You can also really help us out a lot by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and sharing out your favorite episodes with your loved ones. Green Dreamer is grateful for the support of our past and present listeners and readers and for our partnership with Kaliapea Foundation. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Sima Holly. Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.